We started in hard times to bring us all in. Welcome to Public Power Underground, Public Power's premier weekly infotainment program that covers public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. I'm the creative director of Public Power Underground, today's host and the manager of the power department for Klatskin IPUD, Paul Dockery. I'm the editor at large of Public Power Underground, an honorary member of the power department and the Public Power Council's office administrator, Karen Heim. I'm Erin Guillory, the star of Erin Reports, co-star of Public Power Underground, and Klatskanai People's Utility District's controller. And this is Luigi Gillen, the data specialist for Klatskanai PUD, and the on-screen producer for today's episode of Public Power Underground. Today we're joined by a new collaborator from NewsData, the editor for California Energy Markets, a journalist, NewsData's California bureau chief, I think that's a thing, an energy Twitter celebrity, and today's podcast ambassador, Jason Fordney. Welcome to the team, Jason. Thank you, Paul. Great to be here. It's exciting. Are are you excited? Very excited, yeah. Yeah, this is great. This is, uh, it's going to be a little loose, it's going to be a little... It's got a weird vibe. You ready for the vibe? I'm ready for weird vibes, yep. Okay, so I just listened to a Brene Brown interview of Brett Goldstein. Are you familiar with Brene Brown, Jason? I'm not, sorry. You're you're not. Are you familiar with Brett Goldstein? No. Are you familiar with Ted Lasso? Have you watched Ted Lasso? It sounds familiar, but uh, I'm just a print guy, Paul. This is this is this vibe. Paul is has be homework so, for you. <laughs> such a good reference for the vibe. I'm doing such a great job of getting. I was told there'd be no quizzes. <laughs> there, there definitely are. I don't know who told you that, uh, but there you definitely are. You. So that, that Brett Goldstein plays a Ted Lasso character. Roy Kent. Uh, Ted Lasso is one of my favorite shows. She, he was on uh, Brene Brown's podcast, Unlock, Unlocking Us. Brene Brown is I, a really good, I actually only listen to any of her interviews that are with Ted Lasso characters, but she's good. People like her. <laughs> the other ones Aaron, are good too. Aaron likes her. Um, <laughs> she and, has done other things in her life. <laughs> She has done other things. They're really good, and people really like them, I'll just say. But Brett Goldstein explained his affinity for the Muppets on this interview. Are you familiar with the Muppets, Jason? I have heard of the Muppets, yes. Okay. Well, he says what's great about the Muppets is that none of them are actually good at what they're doing, but they love it, and that their passion is what makes it fun. So that's our vibe, Jason. That's the synopsis of our vibe. A bunch of things that you don't have much context for all summed up. It's perfect. I can relate. And, you know, in the media, we're often accused of being puppets, so might as well embrace it, right? Oh! Give me a ba-dum-ching, Luigi. Do we have a ba-dum-ching? Okay, so this is Season 3, Episode 8. I'm calling it Distributed Demand Resources Week. Bam! Uh, it's the third week of the season, a season of sustainable new normals, and we're excited to include news data collaborators as part of our sustainability and the new normal for Public Power Underground. I expect it will be a little bit more sustainable for Klatskin IPUD and a little less normal for news data. We also are welcoming our first sponsor for Public Power Underground. Are you ready for this? It's going to be a cold ad read for my first time. You ready, Aaron? You ready for a cold ad read? Yep, let's do it. Okay, let's do it. Okay. We're proud today to welcome our first sponsor to the underground, the good folks at Efficiency Services Group, our electric utility enthusiasts like us, and we appreciate their help in making this show possible. ESG specializes in working with electric utilities to develop real solutions to meet their specific needs. What kind of solutions, you might ask? How about direct install programs, design and implementation of your energy efficiency program, income qualified programs, and even utility utility staff training by a legend in public utilities uh, across the region. As a bonus, the good folks at ESG are well-versed in BPA and California public benefit programs. So if you're looking for a true utility partner to help with programs like these and more, learn about the ESG story at efficiencyservicesgroup.com. That's efficiencyservicesgroup.com. They're a new sponsor of Public Power Underground their electric utility enthusiasts like us. On today's show, we're getting an update on Northwest Power Markets on Aaron Reports. I talked to Almaz Nagesh about grants for distributed energy resource projects in Washington. Our special council correspondents from PNUC, Shauna McReynolds and Tomas Morrissey, join us to dive into demand response and distributed generation in the Northwest Power and Conservation Council's Draft 2021 Power Plan. We cover more public power and public power adjacent news and public power desktop. And lastly, we're reworking the segment from last week to see if 
we can make it work. And this time we're calling it phase to ground where we TLDR through some headlines we didn't get to on public power desktops. We're starting this week like most weeks, checking in on power market indicators in the Northwest with our first segment, Aaron Reports. Take it away, Aaron. This is Aaron Reports, where we try to get up to speed on Northwest market indicators for November 8th, 2021. I'm Aaron Guillory, and I've got your market update for the week. October through September flows at the Dallas for water year 2022 are currently forecasted to be 89% of normal, and April to September is at 92. Outflow at the Dallas peaked over the past week at 143.2 kcfs on November 5th at 1900 hours. Day-ending elevation at Grand Coulee yesterday, November 7th, was 1,285, and peak outflow this past week happened November 3rd at 19 hours when it reached 145.3 kcfs. Spot market power in the northwest for delivery November 8th is at $62 with gas at $5.09 per MMBTU, translating to a spark spread of $26.36 and a heat rate of 12200 In term markets, balance of the month for mid-sea is now at $57 per megawatt hour. Mid-sea power for December 2021 is at $88, down from $90 a week ago. December gas at Sumas is trading at $6.95, translating to a heat rate of 11,800. Taking a look at fish counts at Bonneville Dam, 360 cohos and 41 Chinook passed through yesterday. Spending a beat at Bonneville's Balancing Authority, peak load this past week was at 7,209 on November 2nd at 8.05 a.m. During loads peak, hydro generation was at 9,219, wind gen was at 8, conventional units were at 1,210, and nuclear was 1,158. All units in megawatts. Enzo for the August-September-October period sits at negative 0.7 Oceanic Nino Index. The multivariate Enzo Index for September-October is negative 1.47, and the SST Consolidated Nino Forecast indicates that we're likely to remain in La Nina through spring 2022. This week in NOAA for climate forecasts, the 6-10 to 10 day outlook has temp above normal for the region. Precipitation is expected to be slightly below normal in the central part of the region, below normal in the south, and near normal in the north. Their 30-day and 90-day reports indicate temperatures in the normal range and a chance of above average precipitation. Special thanks to Answergy for letting us use their dashboards for errand reports, and to Luji for collecting and compiling the data. That's all we've got for this update. Thanks, Aaron. That was great. Um, I did get a note from Brian in leading up to this. He said that the 232,781 adult coho that have passed through Bonneville Dam this year is a lot. So that's nice. Good. It's, it's really noteworthily news. high. So that's good. <laughs> he also good. noted that fish counts are going down because of the fall, and we nothing's going to come back up until the spring season. So this may be our last week reporting on fish counts, and oh. we may transition to snow depths. Oh. Maybe that's the thing now. People like to ski, right, Jason? Do you ski, Jason? You're a drummer. Do you ski? Not much. I don't. <laughs> okay. Skateboard. Oh, that's a thing. You skateboard. <laughs> You're really bringing the California vibe. Yeah, mountain bike. I'm, I live in mountain bike country, so a lot of that. So. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that's all we've got for this week from Aaron Reports. Next up is our weekly walk through public power and public power adjacent news in a segment we like to call Public Power Desktop. Uh, can I get a typewriter first, Luigi? Yes, it worked. Okay. Take it away, Jason. All right. Well, uh, as we recently reported in news data, the Arizona Corporation Commission is having quite a clash with Arizona Public Service, which is uh, the state's largest utility. Uh, this is mostly over rates and also a controversial grid access charge for solar customers. At a late October meeting, the ACC voted to eliminate the solar access charge, a decision the Solar Energy Industries Association said will reduce customers' annual bills by about $100. Uh, the organization testified against the charge in 2020. I'm talking about ASEA there, and demonstrated that solar customers paid their fair share of grid costs compared with other customers. ASEA uh, uh, also says that APS's claims about increased service costs for solar customers were unsubstantiated. Uh, at a more recent meeting on November 2nd, the ACC ended uh, really long deliberations on APS's most recent rate case. Uh, they reduced APS's revenues by about $146 million from what was requested. 
This goes back to uh, earlier rate cases where uh, customer bills went up a lot more than were predicted. Um, so APS says the decision threatens its credit rating, which they never like, and has promised to sue. So a lot of conflict there with uh, APS. Uh, ACC member Sandra Kennedy said that through other mechanisms and charges, APS rates will still increase by about $7 million, leading her to vote no on the rate case. It was a great article out of the November 5th edition of California Energy Markets by Abigail Sawyer. I got that. Sawyer, right? That's how you pronounce yes. the last name. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh, great article. I did find interesting in that article that they were amending the time of use rates as well. That was part of the uh, amended rate case um, from that was proposed. I believe it was like... Through, I'm going to actually look at the article. 3 p.m. to 8 p.m. used to be the peak time of use energy rates, and they shortened that to 4 to 7 p.m. I yep. thought it was really interesting uh, that trying to make sure that people had opportunity to take advantage of the lower rates. Any thoughts on that, Jason? Um, I think, you know, this is part of the usual back and forth with this utility. Um, and, um, you know, I, 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 I guess it's, it's the right way to go. That's, you know, all I can really say about it. Yeah, the time of use rates is a, a always an interesting topic. I actually talked to it on the interview coming up uh, with Shauna McReynolds and Tomas Morrissey because it's one of the proposals from the Northwest Power and P Conservation Council on ways to uh, impact demand in the region. Uh, are you on time of use rates, J Jason, or do you know? We, we do have them in California. Um, I happen to live in an off-grid uh, property. So oh, I'm not, yeah. Wow. That's awesome. We're learning so much about Jason. <laughs> yeah, I, I live up in the Sierra Nevada. Um, we have solar battery system. Um, but they so are So you have the ultimate time of use rates. You uh, yeah. you have a great incentive to use that energy when the sun's out. Yes. And um, I will say if you have a system like this, uh, you will be buying a lot of propane too. So yeah. we have two pretty sizable propane generators. But, uh, you know, California was a leader in time of use and always a big topic and, um, you know, a, a pretty effective, from what I can tell, way to, you know, uh, sort of tailor demand. To move people's demand. Karen, do you hmm. have time of use rates? No. You don't. You're just no. flat. You're like the rest of us. Do you have any demand charge? No. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I, and you're PGE. No, I'm PAC. You're PAC. I've talked. I've asked you this many times. Aaron, yeah. are you PGE or PAC? Checking my emails as we speak. Yeah, okay. That's the, that's the level. <laughs> Most things I expect are people actually don't know. Jason actually is uh, seems like an energy savant. He's got his own system. I think we're ready for the next one. Luigi, give us another typewriter. And Aaron, I think you're up next. The Washington State Department of Commerce recently awarded $3.9 million in grants from the state's Clean Energy Fund for 18 electricity grid modernization projects across the state. Quite a few of the projects awarded grant funding were for distributed clean energy projects and microgrids. To dig a little deeper into the state of distributed energy resources, we invited Almaz Nagash because her doctoral studies at the University of Washington were on quantifying the benefits of distributed energy resources, where she proposed a value-based pricing methodology to determine how the, these resources should be compensated. Almaz works at Tacoma Power as their senior power analyst and has a PhD in electrical engineering. Hey Almaz, welcome back to Public Power Underground. Hi. It is, it is awesome to have you back, our, our special distributed energy resources correspondent, right? Thank you, thank you, Paul. I'm, I'm, I'm very excited. I think we're going to end up getting placards. If I give you a placard, will you like put it up, you know, somewhere? I'll, I'll, I'll put it right there, right, right here on this wall. That's yes, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so I saw this article come out of the Washington State Department of Commerce that talks about some grants for clean energy funds, specifically distributed energy resource projects. And I thought, who better to ask about this topic than our special distributed energy resources correspondent. So what do you think about these DER projects? And one of the areas I have interest in is how, when projects like this could be viable without grant funding, but maybe I'm thinking about it wrong. So what, what's your perspective on projects like these and, and the commercial viability of them? 
well, one of the things that I thought was interesting this time around with uh, the grants from Commerce is that they had two different types. So there was the, the typical grid modernization project uh, grant where you get the money to, to go and, and do the project. But a, a significant number of these were for um, preliminary design projects. I uh, noticed that uh, as well. Grants. Yeah, and that's the one that Tacoma got as well. And one of the things that they that they found is that some of particularly some of the smaller utilities didn't have the um, the resources to to do a really good solid analysis um, so that they would have a, a strong proposal for 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 funding. Uh, so this was this was really exciting to see that so many of, uh, of these grants were were for that preliminary uh, design. But to get to your question about when do these things actually become viable so that they can uh, you know happen without grant funding, um, it's it's just good to note that there's there's still uh, a need even just for the grants for the design and preliminary analysis. So I think we we're, we are still some ways away from these being uh, um, uh, able to, to just uh, flourish without grant funding. Um, that said, what I think is going to take is obviously there's the you know the cost element. Right. Well, so to to the extent that these things can. Um, distributed energy resources can can come down in costs so that folks can go out and buy them like they buy their cell phone or their car, you know, everything else that has come down in, in costs and become more accessible. Um, but then also competition. So, so long as we have um, utilities that, that are monopolies essentially um, and customers don't really have a lot of choice, it makes it a little bit harder for those third parties to come in. So to the extent that there's competition and more innovation um, for, for third parties to make these things more accessible to customers, that, that's something else that um, might actually make it uh, viable. And then the last thing, I, a catastrophe. You know, <laughs> if, people, if people aren't able to access or, or the, the grid becomes unreliable for any reason, uh, pe that will incentivize people to, to drastically switch to distributed resources. And, and so that speaks to more of the resiliency, the value of resiliency. If a catastrophe yeah. comes up, the resiliency is, is on top of mind. I wanted to follow up on, on one thing you mentioned. So these are, there is a lot more grants for the design and, and analysis. It seems like um, that means, does that mean that the actual projects are expected to be able to pencil out once you have a good analysis around them? Is that your hypothesis, that if you get funding for the design, that the actual cost of installation may pencil out and be able to be commercialized without a grant? I believe it would still need a grant, okay. um, but it's, it's mostly so that uh, sometimes yeah, there'll they'll be a, a site, for example, that wants to do for a micro grid, a grid, for example. That's what Tacoma is working with a, a school district that wants to um, uh, ha uh, invest in a microgrid. But the, those, you know, th that particular customer doesn't necessarily have the, um, the, the tools and the knowledge to design uh, a program or a microgrid project. The, period, to, to just make a, a solid design. Right. So they need that assistance first, but it's still not, the cost point still isn't down at a point where um, it could, it could, you know, be built with without the grant funding. So it's mostly to make sure that the, that the design is solid before you go for the grant funding. Okay. And, and, a, and another element to this that I found interesting, last time you were on, we talked about kind of the cost of energy as being a big driver as whether these microgrid projects could ultimately pencil out. And when we talked last time, you know, natural gas prices were still in the $2 and $3. Now, when we look at the forward, power, forward market for gas, they're at $7 and $8. Do you think that could help drive the commercial viability of projects like this if you get power prices that are in the 70s and 80s? Uh, dollars per megawatt hour instead of what we saw uh, just a year or two ago in the 20s and 30s. Does that help put this over the edge of commercial viability or get it closer? You know, well, for some, for some, yes, it does. Um, particularly if it's uh, a util utility, for example, looking at non-wires alternatives. 
Um, but if it's a customer that doesn't necess isn't necessarily exposed to um, that volatility in the natural gas prices, maybe um, they don't necessarily see that benefit to kind of insulate it. And so, uh, but definitely there there is a segment of of the industry that 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 is exposed and will be impacted, and and these DERs will become more viable. So that that actually is another area I have great interest in, and and that's you know this price transparency from a utility to a customer, and I'm wondering. In your, in the way you've thought about this, are there ways utilities can structure their program offerings or rates that can, that can more equitably and you know feasibly help promote these types of projects that add to resiliency and maybe add some clean energy to the local community? Is there something we can do to develop better programs? You know, I think, yes. Um, so I, in in a few minutes, no, I'm not going to give you what the, the answer no, to yeah. that is, but absolutely, yes. We have so much that we can do uh, with regards to, to rates. Uh, it's, yeah. Yes. Just so a yes. I, hear, I just leave it at that. <laughs> I hear that as we should come back and talk more about that because this is a topic I think is incredibly important to better understand, to position a utility like ours for the next step in kind of our, our resource planning. Uh, so are you willing to come back? We can talk about this again. Uh, I love rates. So yes, I'll be back anytime to talk to you about rates. Dynamic I love rates, rates. too. Yes. I love rates too. Let's do it. Okay. Thank you very much for coming. Thanks for being a friend of the underground on Moz. Thank you. Anytime, Paul. Okay. Now back to the underground for more news. Great interview with Almaz. Wonderful always to have her back. She is insightful. She is uh, thought-provoking. Uh, some great commentary. Uh, Luigi, you got to watch this episode for the interview with Almaz because she talks about a topic you li really like, distributed energy resources. You going to do it, Luigi? Yes. We got one. We got one view. Well done. We okay. I'm going to do it, yes. Give us, uh, give us a typewriter, Luigi. And that's to you, Karen. All right. Beginning November 1st, Southern California Edison began, began transitioning residential customers to time-of-use rate plans. The transition of 2.3 million residential customers is expected to continue through April, according to the utility's customer-facing news uh, release. SoCal Edison will be offering three different time-of-use rate plans. Two of the plans are available for any customer to choose. One has a lower peak period energy price uh, during a longer 4 to 9 p.m. peak period price or peak period, and the second with a higher peak uh, energy price during a shorter peak, 5 to 8 p.m pricing period. The third is only available to households with electric vehicles, batteries, uh, or heat pumps, and has a much dis discounted off-peak pricing period but higher daily basic charge. If this is confusing to you, SoCal Edison has a rate plan comparison tool and energy use cost calculator at, and lots of infographics on their website, including a fun little image of a frowny face world, which is a tidge cute and a little bit disturbing at the same time. We found coverage of the change in local news section of KTLA.com. Thanks to Ener Energy News Digest. Digest. Uh, links are in the show notes. Thanks, Karen. Give me some typewriter, Luigi. Let's do it. You're up, Jason. Um, the need to keep the internet operating 24-7, 365 has led to a proliferation of diesel generation in California, really concentrated in Silicon Valley and south coast areas around Los Angeles. A recent study by research firm M-Cubed is getting a lot of attention. It shows a 34% growth in backup generators in the Bay Area alone over the past few years. 90% of these are diesel. Most of the, or I, wanna, I don't want to say most, but many of these are for data centers. Um, now, data on how often these generators run is self-reported, which leads to a, a lack of overall reporting on how much they're being run. They're, they say they're being run for testing. They can be run for other reasons also. Uh, the total diesel capacity in the Bay Area and around Los Angeles is now equal to 15% of the total capacity on the California electric grid, which, if you think about it, is quite significant. The overall grid has a capacity of about 80 gigawatts. Um, as of 2021, in these two districts alone, there are 23,507 backup generators with a capacity of 12.2 gigawatts or about 87,000 megawatt hours per year. At least 1.2 gigawatts of these diesel backup units are used to power data centers in the San Francisco Bay region. 
The main reason for this need is, of course, our un unreliable electricity supply that we have here. Um, one thing to point out is when I was researching my article, Facebook said that uh, in Sweden, for instance, they, they don't really need backup generation compared to the United States because they have a much more reliable electricity grid. So there's a couple articles that tied to this from the California energy markets. You wrote one, what was it, two editions ago or not three editions ago now that <laughs> was specifically about, what was it, the California dream is diesel powered? Yeah, uh, I called it the diesel fired California dream. I was really close. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Sammy Ross from LA Times picked it up and tweeted it and we got a lot of views and now I'm starting to see more coverage. I really have to give credit to M cubed. Uh, apparently one of the researchers here, his daughter goes to school in, in the Bay area and um, they announced they were building a big diesel diesel set nearby. So we started researching it and a really good study that I would recommend from uh, M cubed. It's M dot cubed is the name of it. Yeah, it's a really good origin story for, uh, you know, how these things can pop up. They impact wherever this diesel gen set is, you know, located. And as you reported, it tends to be in, you know, the lower served communities that are vulnerable to this type of emissions. So it's uh, really well researched by M cubed. We'll check it out. Absolutely. Any additional insights? So another story ran on the October 29th edition about how microgrids can lead to diesel generation usage. So you said you, I, I'm lear I learned today, you have your own microgrid. Do you call it that or are you just off, off site and it's just, uh, you have your own full service? Uh, what I've been supply? told, if it's still grid co connected, it's a microgrid. If there's no grid connection at all, it's a, called a mini grid. So I guess we have a mini grid, but it, it is really mini. We have a solar array, a, a, ba a battery system, and as I mentioned, a couple of propane generators. Yeah, I have so many questions. Like, is this? Yeah. Are you tackling the industry, taking it down from the inside, or what is going on, Jason? That's awesome. That's so um, cool. <laughs> you know, it's just a question of where I live. Is there's no utility hookups? I live in a pretty remote area. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Grass Valley. It's in the Sierra Nevada um, foothills. And um, I don't own this property, full disclosure, where, where I live. But uh, some friends of mine, and this was an existing system, so it wasn't any particular choice, but I've used it as a way to you know, learn about these systems. One thing I'd like to point out is um, we looked at expanding this system with some uh, more solar panels and more batteries, and we, we got a quote of over $200,000. So. There's a long way to go with these systems being widespread. They're still enormously expensive. And we have to be very careful with our power usage also. So, you know, this is still very expensive technology that is out of reach for many people, I would say. Yeah, one of the interesting, I think, aspects that I want to learn more about with microgrids is in some way it seems like a microgrid is just uh, access to energy for those with the resources to access energy and not necessarily a way to you know, incre increase access and resiliency for broader communities. In some ways, maybe it's just a premium product for people with capital. Um, but there are a lot of grants, and we did talk about this with Almaz a little, a little bit. There are grants that help provide access to the funds necessary for microgrids at things like schools and community centers and public product projects. So um, in that way, maybe it can, you know, be more uh, uh, available, but I think it's an incredibly interesting topic. Yeah, with, with our grid here, you know, we not only have frequent outages from weather or whatever, like recently we got a lot of rain in the Bay Area, which took out the system because there's mud on the lines apparently, which can conducts electricity. But of course we have the, the uh, PSPSs, the public safety power shutoffs, which are, are quite frequent. Where I live, the power goes out all the time. And <laughs> I might add that uh, the state of California recently banned backup gas-powered generators uh, starting in 2025, I think. So at the same time, our grid is going down all the time. They're basically getting rid of 
the primary means by people retain power for themselves. Uh, and meanwhile, in the Bay Area, gigantic companies are, are building huge banks of diesel. So I did an, another column on that. I, I have a few issues with that that approach. But you're right, there's big equity issues here. If you're a inner city renter in a multifamily dwelling, you're not investing in solar panels uh, or a fancy Tesla battery. But as you mentioned, there's an increasing number of state programs trying to rectify that. Yeah, fascinating topic. We, we, you're going to be back on. We're going to get to tackle this some more, I think. It's, it's going right. to be fun. And we're going to learn more about your own little off-grid situation, which I expect is a great way to actually learn about energy. It really um, is, yeah. Yeah. But give us some typewriter, Luigi. we got to make it to the next clip. You're up, Aaron. Comments on the Northwest Power and Conservation Council's 2021 draft Northwest Power Plan will be accepted through Friday, November 19th. So we invited our special council correspondents, the executive director of the Pacific Northwest Utility Conference Committee, Shauna McReynolds, and PNUC senior policy analyst Tomas Morrissey to dig a little deeper into a particular area of interest in the plan, distributed generation and demand response. Hey, Shauna, welcome to Public Power Underground. Hi. Paul, I'm so glad to be back. It's been a while. It has been a while. My turn. We solved uh, seasonal time change. We're waiting for the rest of the world to catch up, aren't we, Shauna? And, and I wasn't bothered by it till this year. You ruined me. Well, I'm glad I haven't ruined you. I have elevated you to yes. the plane of I don't know what the word is, but you're on my level yeah, now, well, and I am very proud back of that. Is not fun. <laughs> nope. And Tomas, Tomas, welcome back as well. Thanks. Good to be back. I think the last time you were on was like very early in the underground days, and we talked about the NRF, and the NRF's coming out soon again, isn't it? Uh, relatively soon. I think March or April. Oh, no, okay. I'm March, way ahead of schedule. March. I'm way ahead of schedule then. <laughs> You'll be getting a data request soon, so check your inbox. That's what I was expecting. Okay. Thank you for that. That was a good promo, too. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, but today you're acting as our special council correspondents, both of you. It's plural. You're both special and both council correspondents. <laughs> We're very special. And you are very special, very special guests. I'm hoping to dig in a little bit to the Northwest Power and Conservation Council's draft 2021 plan. I have uh, been growing an interest in distributed generation and distributed or demand response um, because I think for utilities like ours, those are going to be some important components of how we can evolve in the coming years. It's discussed in the plan. Tomas, I'm going to start with you for some of the details out of this plan. And I want to talk about how distributed generation is modeled in the plan, specifically rooftop solar. How's it treated, Tomas? That's a good question. And in the 2021 power plan, distributed energy resources, um, for the most part, aren't included in the plan analysis. So when the model goes through and builds a portfolio for the future, it doesn't have the option to select a distributed energy resource. And if you skim through the plan itself, um, distributed energy resources in general or distributed generation, I think it's only mentioned a couple of times and it's really only mentioned to discuss that the plan doesn't look at it. So it's, it's not a main component in there. That said, the plan does include uh, behind the meter solar, so rooftop PV in their load forecast. And so it's kind of baked into the load forecast. So when the model sees its loads, they're already net of that um, behind the meter resource. And the council is looking at about 1,500 megawatts of PV by 2030, uh, growing to closer to 5,000 by 2040. Wow. And so it's 1,500 cumulative. So we've got around 300 now, right? Is that right? I think we're a little higher. I was looking at EAA. Uh, 861 data recently, and I was seeing closer to 500 megawatts cumulative, although it might depend on how you sort that data. But yeah, probably ballpark three to 500 megawatts right now. Okay. I had a number in my head, Shauna, and that was because in the plan, they were quoting 2018 numbers. That was poor me, wasn't it, Shauna? Yeah, I did not you, do my you, research. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta get to the details. Ask more Get questions. to the details. Yeah. Cross-reference. Okay, I check need. My I, I want to check. So you're telling me, Tomas, you think that the 1500 is total, including the 500 that we're, you're just talking about, or in addition to? 
I think that's total by year 2030. And then again, that grows to closer to 5,000 by year 2040. And that does feel like a larger number, but keep in mind, rooftop solar costs are falling. You know, we've seen a lot of um, rooftop solar installations in other states like California. And to the council's credit, it, it's a challenging resource to forecast. You're trying to guess, you know, customer behavior, how is it going to line up with incentives by utilities and states? And so it's, I think it's a relatively reasonable forecast. I'm sure the future will be different, but I'd be, I'd be hard pressed to draw a different forecast and say that one is you know, better or worse. Well, I think what's interesting to me is that it is an input to the plan and not it's not a resource that can be selected. Uh, I suppose that's probably because residential customers putting solar can't be directed under the by the council to install this resource and utilities can't really uh you know install on other people's houses but what they can do paul is i'm in a utility where they're really pushing it and it pops up on all of my the little ads that when i'm on the computer it's in our things that come in the mail um they're really pushing it and what they can do is invest money in that promotion to get to that. I'm kind of stunned by the numbers, pers- just personally. Uh, really? Yeah. Well, so how long have we been working on it to get to the 500? And then in nine more years, we're going to get 500 more. And um, see, I'm not actually that surprised. I, I, I'm. I don't have any intuition around the scope of it. Mm-hmm. I don't find the 1500 too Crazy. much mm-hmm. for sure. I don't either. Um, because I do follow this, this thought that like it's getting cheaper. Yeah. I mean, you can buy these panels at Costco now. And to me, part of the struggle and one of the reasons I'm so interested is because I do think utilities have a fairly large role to play in making sure the programs for installation. So if they're being sold at Costco, I need to have something as easy as going to Costco for them to actually install it in compliance. Does that make sense? Yeah, but how are you going to track it? Exactly. I have to come up with something. So maybe it's out there, but how do we know? I have have a funny little anecdote. uh, Okay, please. I love anecdotes. Well, and it's not even data-related. It's people-related. But remember Cyrus Noy, the uh, founder of News Data, or clearing yes. up, and he always he came to all the peanut meetings, and he was relentless about distributed generation. And he was just thirty years too early. <laughs> he had he and I, and I just have been really struck the last. Um, I just had the thought recently. Mike, God, Cyrus was right, <laughs> and yeah. everybody was going, "Ah, what are you talking about, you crazy man?" And and here here we are. Um, and that is one of the things that are being is being pushed so hard. So I don't know if, yeah, whether may- it might be out there, but I would I, I'm uncomfortable about whether you're going to be able to count it. Or how you're going to know where, if it's there or not. Yeah, and I do think that's important for utilities to have really intuitive ways to be able to count it and for customers to make make it easy for customers yeah. to tell us about it. I also w- want to get a little bit into the demand response side of it, which is an output of the plan. Um, Shauna, can you talk a little bit about how the um, demand response comes from the plan and what your takeaways are on the demand response side? So on the demand response side, they, the council has that as a choice. Um, it's not being picked very rigorously. It's too expensive still in the stack of resources, I believe. And they are calling for time of use rates. Is that the one that's at 200? And then um, what's the other one called? It's uh, all these acronyms that I have to all Demand voltage, voltage reduction. GVR. I thought that was a machine in my house. <laughs> that's kind of out of date, too, when you've got a smart TV. But anyway, and that's a, over 500, 520. That they, they're not, they are recommending utilities work towards those numbers. It, it is not like energy efficiency, go do X amount. And um, I don't know a lot about the DVR. Yeah, so uh, even though you don't know about it, I'm going to put you on the spot. So you have an opinion. You think the 1500 for solar is maybe a little aggressive. So if I get, if you set the over-under of what the council says for the time of use race, 200 megawatts, or 520 of the DVR, which isn't our uh, TV recording software, it's demand voltage reduction, what's, do you think, would you bet over or under on the amount of implementation well, by 2027? in terms of the time of use rates that involve customers, 
I think that in the Pacific Northwest, it's going to be over. Really? Well, it doesn't seem like that much, but you've got to convince people it's the right thing to do. Um, and you have to convince utilities to adopt them. Well, there's that. But at the end of the day, yeah. and Tomas and I were having this conversation, and he'll share his point of view, I'm sure, but uh, our rates are low. And you, and you yes. Costco and I, you're super low. And yes. even in an investor-owned utility world, my power bill isn't that big. Um, I have the opportunity to be part of a demand response piece, and I can get $25 a season if I'm really follow all of that. But if I'm really warm and I have company and I choose, uh, it's too uncomfortable. You you override it and I'll forego the 25 bucks, right? So I think with time of use rates, it's going to be the same thing. So it's going to be a bigger stretch. As prices go up, costs go up, and, and the investments that need to be made in the rest of the system and um as those prices go up, it seems like there might be more of a chance in Hawaii, California, New York. Seems like those those kinds of costs could take a people will take it much more seriously. Yeah, but I'm gonna pivot to you, Tomas. Do you have an opinion on an over under? What would you bet? Would you bet against Shauna? <laughs> That's a good question, and I I might dodge the question slightly. Oh. In that I, he doesn't want to be wrong. The, ever. Uh, <laughs> There's <laughs> around the 700 megawatts of DR total in the first six years. And looking at recent utility IRPs, I think that number in aggregate is going to be achievable and likely achieved in okay. the Northwest. I don't know what's going to be those two specific programs, though. I think it might be coming from other okay. sources. But I think DR in general, I think it's, it's a relatively you know ballpark value for the next six years. I just don't know if it's going to be TOU and DVR or, or other programs. So, Tomas, I'm really interested in like the cost effectiveness. I had a conversation with Almaz about um, when are these types of programs, either distributed generation or demand response, going to be commercially viable uh, without additional grants? Mm -hmm. And there is some insight in this plan about the cost effectiveness of these specific programs and 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 when what types of programs become too because these are selected by the model. What types of programs are too expensive and don't get selected by the model? Can you give me some? insight into that data and and if, yeah. is, is there a lesson to learn from that data set it, it's interesting in the majority of the scenarios that the council runs the model doesn't select any demand response the oh. 700-ish values that are being discussed in the power plan come from a sensitivity um, where they take two relatively cheap programs time of use to demand voltage reduction they then tweak the dispatch assumption to that the programs are available every day for at least four hours and also dispatching at zero cost. And that's when they're seeing um, the selection of you know, seven to 800 megawatts of the program. Um, so these, they're, they're modeling it almost as like an unpaid program. Like you aren't, the, yeah. Shauna's options to actually participate and get some value out of this is not included in this 700 megawatt uh, assumption. Correct. It's, it's a dispatch cost of zero in that 700 megawatt okay. assumption. So it's a really inexpensive product. Um, however, they do have a scenario where they look at, um, I think it's called partial decarbonization. They don't quite get all the way to full decarbonization, but they start down the pathway of starting to aggressively decarbonize the Northwest. And in that scenario, you are seeing a lot more demand response. I think it's in the ballpark of 2,500 megawatts of DR in the first six years. And we're kind of seeing Still that, these same two? Still these same two, or do they no, get into additional programs? It goes into additional programs. So these are two of the cheaper ones, and these are... So the council has uh, demand response bins. So they don't really look yep. at it program by program. They're not saying, hey, do we need like a hot water heater program or a time of use program or an agricultural program? They've lumped the programs to four bins and they're largely lumped by cost. So bin one's the cheapest, bin four is the most expensive. And in the decarbonization scenario, it's buying up, um, I think about half of the available DR. So it's going through the first two bins and buying a okay. lot of it. Um, and what I think is interesting is you're seeing this to some extent in utility IRPs. Uh, Pacific Core's most recent IRP, for example, has a lot of demand response in it. And part of that push is likely Pacific Core's push to decarbonize their portfolio. So while at a regional level, again, the model is not really picking any resource unless they make it super cheap, um, it is picking up in these decarbonization scenarios as we see some utilities go down that pathway, we're seeing it selected in their IRPs as well. 
So that's a good reality check on this plan because the plan does have some modeling assumptions built in. But if you're seeing it in IRPs, maybe that is a reality check on yeah. um, on, on what's getting. And, and, and didn't I see level, PGE? Right, go, go ahead, Sean. Well, just at the highest level. So, I mean, it's really worth emphasizing the, um, the fact that, I mean, you know, they've, they've put together a package or a stack of ideas and utilities continue to be really creative and, and investigating other things. So while they've picked a package in an amount, it doesn't mean the utilities are going to need to do the, exactly those packages. And I, and I think that part is really fascinating. Yeah. So, and a good thing. Yeah. But, I, I think, I think utilities are doing a lot up. more demand response, working toward it. They've really struggled with it, right? The last plan was going, whoa, you guys, why are you demand, you know, demanding uh, this kind of demand response? We can't get customers to play. Right, it was it was a huge amount. Was it six hundred megawatts or three? What was it? I can't even remember, but it was a big number. And utilities. You mean in the seventh plan? Yeah, seventh. It went from a seventh plan to a twenty twenty one plan. I like the rebranding. I'll be frank. I like hey, the rebranding. I looked. I was looking at the past plans. This is the eighth plan, but they they toggle back and forth. They're not all just by the by the. Oh, do they really? Yeah, there's a nineteen ninety. <laughs> one of the nineteen. One of the numbers is a nineteen ninety something plan. So I love it. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. We're running out of time. Okay. I will say, I'm just going to, you didn't ask me. I'm just going to go ahead and say it, though. The combined, you said it was like 700 megawatts combined. In yes. the response. Yeah. I think I'm going to end up on the Tomas side of this where I dodge the question, but I say it's an over on the 700, but I say it's an under on time of use rates mm-hmm. and an under on demand voltage reduction. So I don't think those are the programs, right. but I think the cumulative ends up on over. What do you think, Shauna? You're willing to take that, Ben? Um, I might, you might convince me your light just went off again in that room. You got to turn that off. Stop moving my lights. Demand response right there. That is, that's energy efficiency or is that demand response? Tomas, quickly. (laughs) My lights go off too. Ian's lights go off all the time. He gets very annoyed by it. Is that energy efficiency or demand response? Oh, energy efficiency. efficiency, It's a pain in the rear. Oh, hot take. Hot take on the underground. Thank you both. You're welcome. Tomas, Shauna, thank you very much for coming back. Great to have you both. Thank you for being our council correspondent. You're welcome. See you soon. Thanks. Thank you. Now back to the underground for news. Shauna brought up the topic. I did not bring it up this week, okay? Just want to point that out. How are y'all feeling with seasonal time change? Uh, Paul, we talked about this before you got to this meeting because you were, I guess, in a different meeting. Uh, Hey, we all have meetings. Don't judge me for going to meetings. (laughs) Uh, and we are all mostly not happy with the fact that it's going to be dark by the time we finish filming this. Yes, it is. Okay? It's going to be dark. It, this is not energy policy. Don't let anybody tell you this is energy policy. Jason, This is. have you written an article on seasonal time change yet, Jason? There's clearing up on the case. Not, not yet. Or not yet. California Put it on your list. Markets. Aaron, no, but, you know, you I'm all change. ears. Yeah, well, I have all of the thoughts. I have all of the thoughts. There is a right answer. We have come to it on Public Power Underground. Uh, Washington, Oregon, and California should get uh, the right by the federal government to transition to daylight savings time all the time. That is the right answer. Uh, We are states that are uniquely positioned to take advantage of daylight savings time all the time. That is not a policy that would work well across the country, unfortunately. I do feel bad to my friends that are still in Ohio. Sorry. But for us, uh, daylight savings time all the time works. Okay. Luigi? Daylight savings time all the time is the right answer. Seasonal times change is no terrible. Right, Luigi? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What? I haven't convinced, have convinced yes, Luigi right, that there's a right answer. Yeah. I'm working on it. I showed you her haven't convinced uh, me the yet. database that Not we have yet. that has to accommodate daylight yeah. savings time, the transitions, seasonal time change. Uh, it's not great. Okay. Let me a typewriter. We got to make it to the next one. Okay, you're up again, Jason. Uh, Rick Adair, our, my esteemed colleague over at Clearing Up, uh, reported that Avista and Puget Sound Energy have filed final versions of their clean energy implementation plans with the Washington Utilities and Transportation Commission as required by Washington's Clean Energy Transformation Act. In their plan, Avista is proposing a demand response target of 30 megawatts, which is largely a result of a contract with a paper mill that includes demand response provisions. They also plan to, to develop several other programs leveraging their advanced metering infrastructure. Puget Sound Energy is proposing a DR target of 24 megawatts 
in their plan, which they say will be achieved through a mix of new programs. For more information, see Rick's article in Clearing Up titled, Avista PSE File Clean Energy Implementation Plans. And thanks to Ian Bledsoe for summarizing that article for us. Ian Bledsoe, staff writer at Genesis Apprentices. Uh, you'll see a theme in this. So in the interview with Shauna and Tomas, we made a bet about over under 700 megawatts of combined time of use rates and demand response being deployed by 2027. So in this uh, episode, we've gone through some examples of some demand response programs getting uh, proposed in clean, uh, the clean energy implementation plans. This is about, you know, the uh, uh, Vista and Puget Sound Energy, uh, the the demand response program, I'm, I'm repeating myself, hey, this is on the fly, it's fine. Uh, we also got a lot of commentary about time of use rates, mostly out of California. So I'm going to ask each of you, over or under, are you going over or under 700 megawatts being deployed between now and 2027 for combined time of use rates and demand response? Aaron, starting with you. I'll say over. over. Under. Nice. Karen? I'm going under. Nice. Jason? Within the Northwest, this is not your area, not including okay. California, just the Northwest. All right, um, I'll go over. Okay, you're all on the record now. Luigi, what are you, over or under? I have no idea what you're talking about, Paul. <laughs> yes, yes. That's I'm just gonna say gonna... over. Yeah, there say we go. Over. That's I the content know. we're listening yeah. for. Karen and I are on the right side. I said under. Uh, Karen and I are on the right side. Y'all are gonna be wrong, and we're gonna come back in 2028, I guess, and we're gonna uh, make sure we're all held accountable to that bet. Sounds Don't good. you better believe I'm gonna I'm gonna text Shauna and make sure she knows in 2028 where we were at. Okay. Uh, next up, give me some typewriter, Luigi, and then we're over to you, Karen. A bipartisan infrastructure bill passed both houses of a Congress and has moved to the president's desk after passing the House on Friday, November 5th. As of recording this episode, the president hasn't signed the bill into law, but that might not be the case when it gets published. Some kind of interesting public power adjacent items included our $7.5 billion toward implementing a national network of electric vehicle chargers, another $7.5 billion for zero emissions or low emission buses and ferries, $50 billion towards resiliency infrastructure to prepare for climate change and cyber attacks, and $65 billion towards broadband infrastructure development, which Paul is very excited about. Some extremely interesting public power adjacent items are $73 billion to update and expand the power grid. The press release from the White House describes the purpose of the funds as it will upgrade the power infrastructure by building thousands of miles of new resilient transmission lines to facilitate the expansion of renewables and clean energy while lowering costs. And it will fund new programs to support the development, demonstration, and deployment of cutting-edge clean energy technologies to accelerate our transition to a zero-emission economy. The Northwest Public Power news is that it includes a $10 billion increase in BPA's borrowing authority with a Public Power Council-authored sideboard on transparency and customer engagement uh, on BPA financial plans. To learn more, you can find some news summaries <clears throat> of the contents of the bill in the Wall Street Journal, NPR, and you should expect more content from news data publications coming out on November 12th. Uh, Luigi, give me some applause for the Public Power Council-authored sideboards and, and the $10 million. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. I will share that with the team. Send that and, one back to Marty. Yeah, thank you. And uh, <laughs> Jason, I assume you're going to include some stuff in the next publication about this. Uh, I just assumed. Uh, I think that was a fair assumption. Yeah, we have a Potomac section. Uh, Jim DePeso is our Washington reporter. Uh, but transmission is an issue I've covered a lot. And uh, Yeah, I, I, will, I will say that money is not really the obstacle to building transmission as far as I can see. It's local opposition um, and getting over that's going to be tough that is perfect what a transition you're a pro at this jason you're All getting right. so good okay <laughs> take it give me some typewriter take it away aaron <laughs> lastly in dispatches from energy twitter we have two kind of related but unrelated stories first is the news that maine voters on tuesday november 1st rejected a quebec hydropower high voltage direct current aka HVDC transmission line proposed to bring 1200 megawatts of Quebec hydropower to New England along a new 145 mile transmission line through Maine's northern forests. The ballot measure comes after the project had completed state and local permitting and commenced construction. Secondly, and I think it's important to note at this point that both stories will be in the show notes, John Oliver did a segment about the power grid on HBO's Last Week Tonight. At Simon Mahan claims it's a must-watch for power geeks. 
you can find a link to the specific segment on YouTube, and we'll drop that link on our Substack page. It was also in Monday's edition of the Energy News Digest, where he includes a PG-13 disclaimer. So since we're collaborating with a real news organization now, it's probably important for us to include a disclaimer that it's a comedy show, folks, on HBO. So if you don't like that kind of comedy, um, it, it might not be for you. Uh, did you, what, any commentary, Jason, this HVDC line? I mean, this is just the story, right? You can have all the money you want, but you got to actually be able to put it somewhere. Yeah, uh, I've covered transmission for almost 20 years. Um, the East Coast is even tougher where, where I'm from, Virginia, Appalachian area. It's, it's next to impossible. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers, back in the 2005 Energy Policy Act, they created this new category, public interest transmission corridors, gave DOE more authority to approve lines. I would say the bottom line is nobody wants a federal government dictating where, these, where this infrastructure goes. States don't want it. Uh, Arizona's already complaining about any sort of federal um, you know, uh, intervention here. And that public interest transmission corridor project, even though it was a big fancy deal from DOE, um, went nowhere. And they held some public hearings and, you know, everybody showed up and just nothing ever happened. And I, I, I assume it's going to be the case now. I, I think distributed resources is really the future and building new transmission is enormously difficult. Yeah, and it was covered in kind of John Oliver's piece as well, the complications of citing these transmission. Have you watched it yet, Karen? It is great. I did not watch it yet. I'm saving it. I will do it. That's good. You should. It's really, it's good content. Uh, maybe even better than Public Power Underground. Uh, but there is, and I think there is some components to kind of refresh that 2005 uh, North or the Energy Policy Act, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, in this new infrastructure package, they had some more similarly themed things about new authority that could be allocated to FERC. But Neil Chatterjee, the current chair, said it's unlikely we're going to end up using this because of exactly what you spoke to, Jason. Am I making that up or have you heard that too? Um, and what in particular? The, the, there is some additional like enhancements to that authority for FERC in the infrastructure bill. Yeah, I think it basically gets down to if states don't approve it in time or a certain period, they can just approve it but I think Mr. Chatterjee's probably correct there. Yeah, unlikely to get implemented. There is, we started talking, we've talked almost the whole episode about microgrids and distributed generation, but those work best in a organized market with transmission access. So it's not the whole solution, right, Jason? You do need some, if you can find a place to put them. Is there any hope in highways? Can we do this in highways? That seemed to be a thing that I was hopeful about. Yeah, I think if you can build it on existing right-of-ways, I think um, our transportation secretary has talked about this, or even railroad um, right-of-ways, that might work. Sure. Yeah, I, we need some hope, Jason. We're trying oh, to yeah. be a, a hopeful podcast. You know, I'm, I, <laughs> I can't see the future. Things might change. Uh, I think the renewable community is trying to rely on, you know, this is going to help renewable energy development. Maybe that'll help. But... Uh, yeah, it's a tough sell in the desert, in the forest. Nobody wants gigantic lattice towers and everything that comes with it, especially here in wildfire country where, you know, we have massive fires every year from transmission lines. How are you going to come in and say, hey, we want to build more transmission? It's a tough sell. Yeah, it is a tough sell. So thanks, everybody. I think we're going to make it. We're closing out the public power desktop. Luigi, give me some typewriter to close it out. And we're still workshopping a new segment where we try to round up public power and public power adjacent news we didn't wouldn't otherwise get to on public power desktop. We tried last week. We, I think we can all agree it wasn't perfect. Um, and we also we we tried a, a name short to ground. Also, I don't think it's the right name. We're going to try phase to ground this week. It's also a short phase to ground. I don't know how we feel. We're going to try it. Yeah. Luigi, how would you say phase to ground in French? Okay, so. The way I would say it would be phase-tier or phase-à-neutre, but I don't I know like what the like the exact term would be. Like, scientific. It sounds fancier, term. though. It does say, sound. What, what was the second one? Phase-à-neutre? Yeah, it's right here. Phase-à-neutre. 
I like it. I like that. It sounds fancier. Are you ready for this? We're going to try it this week. We're going to go back and forth, Karen. So it's not just me rushing through some stories. So we will rush through together. (laughs) We'll rush through together. Okay. So this week, and uh, Karen and I are going back and forth. We're going to go for it. Ready? Let's do it. Okay. This is Face to Ground, where we TLDR our way through some news leads. I'm Paul Dockery, and I'm shorting to ground. No, I'm phasing to ground this week. Still short. Okay. In Northwest Fish Topics, federal defendants are appealing several U.S. district court rulings from a lawsuit that resulted in new spill deep drawdowns and the potential to use water from power pools at hydroelectric dams during critical winter months in order to protect fish in the Willamette Valley Project. And an agreement pausing litigation over the Columbia River system operations for nine months could also, under average water conditions, reduce electric generation from the Columbia Basin's federal electric dams for the next year by 45 average megawatts. But BPA doesn't plan to charge customers for the cost additional to cost of additional spill under the agreement, the agency said on November 4th. The top stories out of California energy markets this week are that California energy regulators decided to allow the Aliso Canyon natural gas storage facility, which six years ago leaked about 100,000 metric tons of methane into the air, to begin storing more gas than previously approved. And California energy regulators proposed an expansion of the state's energy load reduction program, including higher payments for cutting power usage and inclusion of residential electric customers and electric vehicle owners. Also remaining eligible for the California Public Utilities Commission's load reduction program under the proposed decision are large facilities such as data centers that use diesel backup generators. I'm a little suspicious. <laughs> I'm a little suspicious that emergency load reduction is just a euphemism for rolling blackouts, but I'm not sure. In regional Roundup, <laughs> energy storage is often touted as an important technology for meeting renewable energy goals. But a new study by researchers at the U.S. Department of Energy's National Renewable Energy Laboratory finds that adding energy efficiency to the equation can reduce the amount of storage required, while ensuring buildings can be totally powered by renewable resources. And in news from the banks of the Potomac, uh, industry groups reacted cautiously to the Environmental Protection Agency's sweeping proposal to limit methane emissions from new and existing oil and natural gas facilities. The administration's proposal would cut emissions from regulated sources and and operations by 74% from 2005 levels, according to the proposal released on November 2nd. In earnings news, PG&E Corporation reported a loss of $1.1 million in the third quarter compared with a profit of $83 million in the year-ago period driven by bankruptcy-related expenses, amortization of wildfire fund con- contributions, and other wildlife and investigation costs. Edison International, the parent company of Southern California Edison, on November 2nd reported a net loss of $341 million, or $0.90 per share, for the third quarter, with adjusted core earnings of $644 million, or $1.69 per share. Excel Energy, the Minneapolis-based parent company of Excel Energy Colorado and Southwestern Public Service, which serves eastern New Mexico and West Texas on October 28th, posted net income of $609 million, or $1.13 per share for the third quarter. Idaho Power's parent company, Idacorp, uh, recorded net income of $98 million, or $1.93 per diluted share, in the third quarter, compared with $102 million, or $2.02 per diluted share, in the same period of 2020. You know, this is Q3 earnings period, so we won't do this every week. So if you're getting bored right now, don't worry. It won't be happening next week. Northwestern Energy reported net income in the third quarter of $35 million or $0.68 cents per diluted share, compared to nearly $30 million or $0.58 cents per diluted share for the same period in 2020. Portland General Electric reported on October 29th a net income of $50 million or $0.56 cents per diluted share for the third quarter of 2021, a sharp turn away from the $17 million loss or $0.19 cents per diluted share the utility reported for the third quarter of 2020 after recording energy trading losses. Yeah, you will all remember those energy trading losses. That was a pretty big whoops, and that we remember. A Avista, <laughs> that was a big deal. Avista Corp. on November 3rd reported net income of $14.4 million, 20 cents per diluted share for the third quarter of 2021, compared to $4.9 million, 7 cents per diluted share for the same period in 2021. This is public power adjacent news. We got through all those Q3 earnings. We won't do it again next week, but it is relevant. We should know what our IOU counterparties are up to. And we'll end by clearing up this week. Asia Dekuto, a member of the Confederated Tribes and Bands of the Yakima Nation, was selected to serve as the Executive Director of the Columbia River Intertribal Fish Commission, or CRITFIC. Uh, she is the first woman to serve in that role. Uh, that's all we've got for this week, so back to close out the episode. Woo! We did it. Good we, job, We Karen. did it. Did that it feel felt better? Good. Was that better, Jason? Did you listen to last week's, Jason? I listened to some of it, yeah. yeah was it better this week or not? Well, I don't want to be biased since it's my first appearance. Uh, gosh, I don't, uh, they were I mean, both great. Yeah, so Ian <laughs> refers to this as gonzo reporting, which apparently is some term where you make yourself the subject of the news. Are you familiar with gonzo reporting? 
Is I saying that right? Uh, Hunter S. Thompson, Gonzo journalist. Gonzo journalism. That's what we yeah. do here at Public Power. Yeah, right. So you can be serious, self-serving. Aaron, did that feel better this week? The back and forth, the energy news roundup. You're muted, Aaron. I can't work my mic. Oh, I was like, is she week. using her space bar? That again? sounded great. <laughs> it sounded really good. I love the back and forth. Okay. Well, if uh, anybody else has notes or any other notes about this week's episode, you can send any of us uh, questions, news, opinions, or corrections to me on Twitter at a power manager. You can find Jason at Ford, Fordney Energy. Uh, it's, it's there somewhere, right? You're on Twitter. Just search yep. for Jason Fordney. Yep. Mm-hmm. Thanks for joining us, Jason. Thank Thanks, Luigi. It was great having you, Luigi. Always great to have you back. We missed you last week. Thank Aaron. you. I'm always happy to be here. Thanks, Luigi. Always a star. <laughs> Aaron. Same. Okay. You got it. <laughs> yep. Karen, it's nice to have you. It's nice to have you back. It was good to be back. Okay. Do you all feel valued and appreciated? I value and appreciate each of you, just to be clear. You feel it? I feel it. We no, value and appreciate Thank you, Paul. You. Yeah, so I'm not going to be here next week. I'm taking vacation. So we're going to have an episode uh, with uh, a crew that sans Paul. I'll probably still interview people, so you'll still get to hear me. But our next episode will be recorded on November 15th, 2021, published November 18th. To make sure you don't miss it or any other episodes, you can sign up for an unintrusive newsletter letter with links to all the ways to consume this fascinating content at publicpowerunderground.substack.com. Otherwise, you can subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, or your favorite podcast app. You don't have to subscribe to News Data to get this podcast, but it sure makes our podcast make a lot more sense. And you know what? I forgot I got to read the promo again. So, uh, sorry, ESG, I didn't get to this earlier. We're going we're gonna to do it now. Are you all ready? I got to find it again. Um, but don't worry. We gotta, it's, we're going to read it. You all should be, very, you should be very listening attentively to this. No skipping the 30 ahead. They're providing this great content to you. You get it for free. All you have to do is listen to this promo for uh, the Efficiency Services Group, who are electric utility enthusiasts like us. you got to respect that. If you talk to them, you're talking to electric utility enthusiasts. I bet we can maybe even get some of them to buy some merch when we get it. I'm thinking electric utility enthusiast sweatshirts or T-shirts. Yes. Um, ESG specializes in working with electric utilities to develop real solutions to meet their specific needs. And once again, ESG not does not stand for uh, environmental, social, and governance, which uh, we learned from our friends at TEA last week is what ESG stands for when you're talking about it in investment context. It stands for efficiency. Oh, man. Oh, man. Just leave this in. Leave this in. It's fine, Sarah. It's fine. Efficiency Services Group. That's what it stands for. And you can go to efficiencyservicesgroup.com to learn more. And you know what, Aaron? Klatskanite, Luigi, Klatskanite, we use ESG. This is a promo that we can actually speak to. And next week when Brian reads a promo, if ESG decides to advertise with us again next week, hopefully we do it well enough. (laughs) He can do, he's the one that manages this contract for us so he can speak to it from experience. So great stuff there. I post the invoices. Aaron posts the invoices. That gets you excited. Yes. Are they are they easy to deal with, Aaron? Are they easy to deal with? Incredibly easy. Do those invoices get processed quickly and appropriately? Yep. It's so like a good. Blink. So good. Look at that great promo you got, ESG. Oh, I I read it. It was great. It was great. You're welcome. Okay. Thank you for supporting us, Karen. Wasn't that great? They supported us. It's so great. I think it was exactly what they were expecting. They were expecting exactly that if they've listened to this podcast before. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you all. Had a blast. Public Power Underground is a production of Klatskin IPUD and News Data. The views expressed here are our own and not the official views of neither Klatskin IPUD nor News Data nor the organization of the guests also appearing on Public Power Underground. Public Power Underground is public power and public power adjacent news from a power department's perspective. It's written and directed by Klatskin IPUD's power department, led by me, Paul Dockery, and it's edited and published by the stellar team of Pioneer Utility Resources, led by associate producer Sarah Wooden. Our theme song, Roll All Enthusiasts, was rewritten, performed, and recorded by Aaron Guillory and Ian Bledsoe. Public Power Underground for electric utility enthusiasts. Public Power Underground, it's work to watch.